Hello and welcome back to the Church's True Faith Crisis and Reconstruction podcast series. My name is Rob Terry. Today's episode is on the first vision. As you know, there are multiple versions of the first vision account that have been a stumbling block for some people in their faith crisis. We'll talk about those issues. We'll also talk about the priesthood restoration and the issues related to that that might cause faith crisis. We'll also touch on the subject of LDS exclusivity and what it means to be the only true and living church. And hopefully we'll be able to do some faith reconstruction. So if faith crisis and deconstruction has affected your testimony on some of these things, hopefully we can do some reconstruction to talk about how we can reframe some of these things or have a new paradigm of some of these things and retain the truth and beauty that we love about that church. So with that, let's get started. First vision was never a really huge issue for me in my, in my faith crisis period. It's always interesting to me to see the different issues that people have. It's always a little bit different for each person. For me, the first vision issues didn't even come in my top 10, probably. Now, the restoration of the priesthood and the issues related to the angel visitations of John the Baptist, Peter, James, and John— that was kind of a big deal. That's definitely towards the top, definitely in my top five. So we will get into those issues. This is also another one where the church is doing a really good job being open and trying to change the narrative. In 2013, they came out with the Gospel Topics essays and introduced formally all of the different First Vision accounts. And since then, they've been integrating that into the, all the curriculum and church media we're attempting to harmonize all the accounts, but we're also putting them all out there so that people can read them and study them and not be surprised by any of the issues. There are four main First Vision accounts. The first one is Joseph Smith's 1832 account that he wrote for his own personal history. There's the 1835 account. There's the official 1838 account that's canonized in our Pearl Great Price. And then there's the 1842 Wentworth letter that is very similar to the 1838 account. And so we will mostly focus on the 1832 and 1835 account and the, and the differences, if any, between the official 1838 account. Of the 1832 account, Richard Bushman said, The 1832 history we know is his because of the handwriting. It comes rushing forth from Joseph's mind in a gush of words that seem artless and uncalculated, a flood of raw experience. I think this account has the marks of an authentic visionary experience. There is the distance from God, the perplexity and yearning for answers, and then the experience itself which brings intense joy followed by fear and anxiety. Can he deal with the powerful force he has encountered? Is he worthy and able? It is a classic announcement of a prophet's call, and I find it entirely believable. I also really like the 1832 account, and it does seem very personal. It's in Joseph's own hand. You can go online and read, read it in his own handwriting, and it's really kind of touching, and you can kind of feel his spirit as, he, as you read this. You see that he's inserted words. He puts a little carrot and a word up at the top, and he crosses out words, and you can kind of see his thought process as he's trying to as he's trying to grab the human language that can explain this interaction with the divine. My favorite part is when he writes, pillar of fire, and then crosses out fire and puts light, a pillar of light above the brightness of the sun. There are a few issues that don't seem completely in harmony with the official 1838 account. 
the impetus for Joseph going to pray is that he wants to find out which church is true, right? We know this story very well. Well, in the 1832 account, it's interesting that he has already determined that none of the churches are true through his own personal study, and his motivation to go to the grove to pray is to seek forgiveness for sin. In Joseph's words in 1832, he writes, I found that mankind did not come unto the Lord, but they had apostatized from the true and living faith, and there was no society or denomination that was built upon the gospel of Jesus Christ as recorded in the New Testament. That is kind of a big discrepancy, but in this account, when he sees Jesus, Jesus does give language related to the other churches not being true. And so it's understandable how that could be confused possibly in memory over time. The other main issue, and this is kind of the big issue in this whole multiple first vision account question, is whether or not he saw only Jesus or whether or not he saw both God the Father and Jesus Christ. So let's read the text of the 1832 account. And the Lord heard my cry in the wilderness, and while in the attitude of calling upon the Lord in the 16th year of my age, and in his handwriting it's hard to see if he meant 16th or 15th, and 16th year of age is 15 years old, 15th year of age would be 14 years old. So he's either 14 or 15 years old at this time. In the 16th year of my age, a pillar of light above the brightness of the sun at noonday came down from above and rested upon me. I was filled with the Spirit of God, and the Lord opened the heavens upon me, and I saw the Lord. This is the key phrase right now to try to see what's going on. I was filled with the Spirit of God, and the Lord opened the heavens upon me, and I saw the Lord. So there's two interpretations. One is that the first Lord is God the Father opening the heavens, and the second Lord is Jesus Christ. Or that both lords are the same person and Jesus in both cases, and there's no God the Father. I was filled with the Spirit of God, and the Lord opened the heavens upon me, and I saw the Lord. I could see how you could take it either way. I think the most natural reading is that it's just one person, one Lord, one Jesus that he's referring to. But I think you can take it either way. And he spoke unto me, saying, Joseph, my son, thy sins are forgiven thee. Go thy way, walk in my statutes, and keep my commandments. Behold, I am the Lord of glory. I was crucified for the world, that all those who believe on my name may have eternal life. And then Jesus goes on to tell him that his sins are forgiven, and that the truth is not on the earth. They have turned aside from the gospel, and keep not my commandments. They draw near to me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me. This is very similar to the 1838 language, but it is flipped a little, where in the 1832 account, Joseph comes in knowing that, that none of the churches are true, and then Jesus confirms that. Okay, the 1835 account. Joseph is in Kirtland, Ohio, and Robert Matthews, who goes by the name Joshua, the Jewish minister, a very interesting fellow, comes to Kirtland for a couple days, and he stays with Joseph, and they're telling stories back and forth. Uh, Robert Matthews has a lot of stories, and Joseph Smith has a lot of stories too. And Joseph tells him about this first vision. In this one, he doesn't know which church is true. It says, Being wrought up in my mind, respecting the subject of religion, and looking at the different systems taught the children of men, I knew not who was right or who was wrong, and considering it of the first importance that I should be right in matters that involve eternal consequences. And then, I called on the Lord in mighty prayer. A pillar of fire appeared above my head. It presently rested down upon me and filled me with joy unspeakable. A personage appeared in the midst of this pillar of flame, which was spread all around and yet nothing consumed. Another personage soon appeared like unto the first. He said unto me, Thy sins are forgiven thee. He testified unto me that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, 
and I saw many angels in this vision. I was about 14 years old when I received this first communication. So on this one, a personage appeared in the midst of the pillar of flame first, doesn't reference who it is, and then another personage soon appeared likened to the first. He said unto me, thy sins are forgiven thee. He testified unto me that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and I saw many angels in this vision. In the 1838 account, it doesn't mention any other angels. In the 1832 account, it says the Lord opened the heavens upon me. So there could be an implication that looking into the heavens, he saw many angels. And then the 1835 account directly says, and I saw many angels in this vision. Okay, then the question of whether it's both God the Father and Jesus Christ. In the 1835 account, it never specifically identifies either God the Father or Jesus Christ. But I think we can assume, especially given the other accounts, that the first personage could be God the Father, and then the second personage is very likely Jesus Christ. I'm not sure what's the most natural reading, but I think it might be kind of 50-50 that it's God the Father presenting Jesus Christ, and then maybe 50-50 that that first personage might be some kind of angel or something announcing the coming of Jesus Christ. But I think this harmonizes with the 1838 account reasonably well. Greg Prince reminds us that there's an account in the Doctrine and Covenants that he calls the 1831 account. But in DNC section 20, they are kind of going through the history of the Restoration. And they're talking about where Joseph and Oliver got their authority. And then in verse 5, this is still right at the beginning before Angel Moroni, before the Book of Mormon. In verse 5, it says, After it was truly manifested unto this first elder that he had received a remission of his sins, he was entangled again in the vanities of the world. Greg Prince argues that this is the very first reference to the first vision, and it's quite simple. It's just that Joseph Smith had received a remission of his sins, and that was kind of a common thing. In that day, religious leaders saw a vision of God and received a remission of their sins through that vision. So it's very understandable that Joseph Smith could have understood that vision from the very beginning as being very similar to other people's visions that were around him in that time, with a very specific but possibly generic message that God exists and that God is showing a sign of forgiveness for the person receiving the vision. Now let's go over the 1838 account a little bit. Richard Bushman about this says, We don't know who wrote the 1838 account. Joseph's journal indicates that he... Sidney Rigdon and George Robinson collaborated on beginning the history in late April, but we don't know who actually drafted the history. It is a polished narrative, but unlike anything Joseph ever wrote himself. And this goes along with that same 1838 history that we talked about in the Book of Mormon translation episode. Very clean, very scrubbed, very official version of the story. And you see that the true history, even that the LDS scholars and saints are acknowledging is a lot messier and a lot different than that official version. Greg Prince says, if there was this much change from 1831, and he's talking back to that Doctrine and Covenants version, to 1838, then how much change would there be between 1831 and whenever the original incident was? The answer is we have no clue. We'll never have access to what the historical event was. He says, this started out as a historical event. That historical event becomes lost in time and memory. By 1832, it meant something else. By 1838, it meant yet again something different. He calls the 1838 account a theological statement, and I take that to mean that it is sparked by historical event, but the formalized official theological statement then becomes a bit disconnected and uncorrelated to the actual historical event. 
I would explain this as according to Joseph Smith's 1838 understanding, this is what his interaction 18 years prior should have meant and should have been interpreted regardless of how he interpreted it 18 years prior as a 14-year-old boy. And more from Greg Prince. He says, a religious leader has to succeed in two areas. One is that there has been some type of unusual contact between that individual and deity that makes this relationship different. And number two, can that religious leader give the community of believers access to that vision? That's it. Joseph Smith was extraordinary on both counts. And then again, the central message is to touch the face of God. What does that mean? That means that you have somehow access to the divine, to the infinite. How do I take that infinite and convert that into the finite? That is what Joseph Smith was trying to do and what he did extraordinarily well. He allowed his community of believers to touch the face of God. This is my words now. Joseph Smith saw the face of God, interacted with God. Now he's creating symbols to help his followers, and that's all the way down to us, share in that same experience. And those symbols became his accounts of the first vision, the gold plates, the Book of Mormon, the scriptures that he translated, the Book of Abraham and the Book of Moses, and the, the revelations of the Doctrine and Covenants, the covenants and the ordinances that we have. All these things are symbols that help us share in that very, very simple, central message to touch the face of God. And Greg Prince asked us not to get hung up on the symbols. The symbol is not the message. The message is to touch the face of God. The symbol are all these things that help us do that. I kind of like how the church is harmonizing all of these accounts, and, and that's really shown well by this painting by Anthony Sweat. He's a BYU professor, and he also does some artwork. He's done some artwork on Joseph looking in the hat at, at the seer stone, and he's trying to push the needle in terms of pushing out new art and leading by example for, new, for LDS artists to get with the new history and start creating new art that can be inspiring, that can be a little bit more historically accurate. And he has a really cool painting that I'll link to in the show notes where Joseph Smith kind of has his back turned to God the Father and Jesus Christ. So there's an implication that this is a spiritual event, not a physical visitation. We'll get into that evidence a little bit in a little bit. And then Satan is off here kind of looking kind of surreal like like maybe he's more to be understood metaphorically and i myself don't find it very useful to talk about a literal satan but i do find it extremely useful to talk about satan as a metaphor for the potential of evil that humankind has we have the potential to be very evil and to do some very bad things and satan kind of as a metaphor of that and also satan as a metaphor of the harsh negative self-talk that we give us you know i think it's useful to talk about those voices those really harsh negative voices that's satan get out satan stop talking to me that way stop believing those words because that's coming from satan not god and then also in this there's the pillar of fire it shows the fire and then it shows god kind of up above and jesus kind of down below on his right hand so it's two personages, but it's more kind of in the Trinitarian view that Joseph probably understood the vision at the very beginning and what comes out more in the 1832 and 1835 account, where maybe God is kind of up in the heaven and then Jesus is the one coming down below, bridging the gap. 
as he as that is his role to interface with humans and then also we see the angels kind of in the background and also in a kind of a very surreal like way implying that this is a spiritual experience really cool painting by anthony sweat so the common criticisms of the first vision of the multiple first vision accounts are that his motivation to pray had he already figured it out or was he going to pray to find out which church was true that's understandable. I can see both sides of that, but I personally just don't think it's that big of a deal. The number of personages involved, whether it's God the Father and Jesus Christ or just Jesus, and I can see why that is a big deal also, and I can see why the 1832 account, I myself probably view that as being Jesus only in that account. Like Greg Prince, I view the first vision as the only thing we can really glean from an absolute knowledge perspective is that he had a spiritual experience. He, he had an interaction with the divine. He saw God, period. We sometimes try to use the first vision and do a bullet point list of doctrines that come out of the first vision, and I don't think that's appropriate. Another criticism is what age is he? Is he 14 or 15 or maybe even older? I think it's fine to view him as 14 or, or maybe 15, but I think based on the different accounts, age 14 is fine and probably the most likely. Another criticism is whether Satan was involved in, in some of the accounts. He takes a more prominent feature in terms of trying to stop Joseph Smith from doing this. I think that's also another thing that is natural that you might have emphasized different differently at different times of your life. Another criticism is that he says there was unusual excitement on the subject of religion. Some people criticize that as saying there were revivals and there was these big religious events in Joseph's age, but it wasn't when he was 14. It was a few years earlier or a few years later. That just doesn't seem very compelling criticism to me because to a 14-year-old kid, a couple of people talking about religion could seem like unusual excitement, right? I have a son who's almost 14 years old, and Luke, you are a stud in every way, but if we had to rely on him for absolute knowledge about anything, we would be in trouble. Luke and I, we go do stuff, and then a few weeks later, he's talking about it and remembering it, and he doesn't remember it correctly. He's wrong. 14-year-old boys are not super reliable on recording accurate history or recording accurate anything. I know that sounds like a cop-out, and it may seem like I'm being too much of an apologist in this episode, but I just don't see these issues as being that big of a deal. I think it's very easily to understand that he could have different memory at different times and also that it could have meant different things at different times. Another criticism is there's an episode in church history where Joseph Fielding Smith, I believe, was accused of cutting out this 1832 account from the Joseph Smith papers and removing it and hiding it. And some people think maybe he was trying to suppress it. And then it came out later. And now you can see when you go to the Joseph Smith papers, allegedly there's a tape mark that it's taped back in. And you can kind of see possibly what that is, that tape mark there. I'm not totally sure on that. It fits my paradigm that church leaders are not perfect. And so if Joseph Fielding Smith read this first vision account and didn't understand it and panicked and decided to suppress it, I think that would be unfortunate. But I think that fits my paradigm that some people make mistakes. Humans make mistakes. We don't believe in perfect leaders. So I'm not really sure if he did that or not, or if there's some other plausible explanation like 
he was doing it to make it more secure so it wouldn't get lost. Who knows? I don't know. But that, again, is not that big of a deal to me. So let's go to the common takeaways that we do when we talk about the first vision. We say this proves that X, Y, Z. And the first one is that it proves our doctrine of the Godhead is true, that God and Jesus Christ are separate beings and that they have material bodies of flesh and blood. First of all, I don't think that any of the information that we that comes from the first vision can be taken as absolute knowledge, absolutely correct. But let's assume that it was and that the 1838 account did describe absolute information about the universe and God. Joseph Smith never touches God or Jesus. He never shakes hands. He doesn't know if they have a body of flesh and blood. And the other thing is that this vision, I believe, could be coming from a Trinitarian view. We make fun of Trinitarians and the Trinity doctrine a lot in our church and how it doesn't make sense logically that God could be so small he's on the pin of a needle, and then, but he's so large he could be all through the universe. And ha, 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 that is so silly, we say. But God is a mystery. And I think we're a little guilty of overcorrecting and taking too much of the mystery out of God and how we define God. And I understand why we do that. And I think it's beautiful. And Terrell Givens says, you know, we have a God who weaves and we have a very intimate God because we've defined him so well like that. But then also it takes away some of the mystery. And and also, if you think about our views really long enough, we have some illogical things and some inconsistencies that are hard to explain also. I think we should be a little bit more humble about our doctrine. And also, I don't know that the Trinity doctrine and our doctrine is completely that different just on a practical day-to-day basis when we're talking about God. You could listen to Trinitarian Christians talk about God for hours and hours and hours and never hear anything different. They're talking about God the Father, Jesus Christ. They're praying to God the Father in the name of Jesus Christ, just like us. They're viewing God and viewing Jesus very, very similar as we do. And so I don't know that our doctrines are as far apart as we really think they are. Many of you like to Bible bash as missionaries. You know, you're told not to, but still, it's one of your favorite activities. And we would Bible bash every now and then. And the account of the martyr Stephen, where he sees the vision of God the Father and on his right hand, Jesus Christ, that's one of the favorite Bible verses to use if you're Bible arguing and bashing with with a Trinitarian. But the thing is, they believe that story too. They don't think there's anything wrong with it. They don't think that's a mistake. They view God the Father and Jesus Christ exactly as portrayed in that New Testament passage. And if you look at like Catholic paintings or Renaissance paintings of Stephen the Martyr's vision, it looks a lot like the first vision with God the Father and Jesus Christ on the right hand. And so these doctrines are very confusing and hard to wrap your brain around, both the Trinity doctrine and our Godhead doctrine. And I think we may be more similar than we are alike on these things. My wife forced me to read the book, The Shack, and watch the movie. She loves these Christian feel-good things. Okay, I admit it. I kind of like them too. I'm a sucker for these feel-good, chicken soup for the soul kind of inspirational messages, and The Shack is one of those. It's a very loving portrayal of God and God's grace. It shows this man going to this old shack, and in here he has an interaction with the divine. And he sees God the Father, and he sees Jesus Christ, and he sees the Holy Ghost, and they each come to him 
as different personages, different actors in the, in the movie. And God the Father is a black woman. That's kind of fun. And Jesus is separate, and the Holy Ghost is separate. And someone believing in the Trinity made this movie and this book. So they are viewing them each as separate beings. One of the points I really like about this movie that I think is totally compatible with Mormon doctrine is that the, the black woman is portrayed as God, is this loving, wise God. You know, sometimes we want a God like a, an Oprah or like a real loving black woman that full of wisdom, right? And then there was another moment when this man, he needed a different type of God. He was going to go do something very difficult, and he needed strength. And that day, God appeared to him as a, as a Native American man, kind of a strong, silent type. And I know we're very sensitive to racial stereotypes. Please, let's get past that. But it's beautiful how this book and movie portrayed God as having these different attributes that we could connect to as humans. And I love and I'm so grateful that we have the same doctrines of God the Father and Heavenly Mother, and there's different attributes that we can connect to at different times. Beautiful doctrine. So in conclusion there, I don't think the first vision proves anything about the nature of God. And critics of the multiple first vision accounts say that the, the number of personages kind of tracks with Joseph's evolving ideas about Godhead. And I agree that Joseph had evolving views about the Godhead. The Book of Mormon is very simple Trinitarian doctrine. Then you go a little further, I think it's the lectures on faith, and I think Joseph has a, a new view that's moving away from the Trinity where God is separate and Jesus Christ is separate, and I don't think he fleshed out the whole thing about the Holy Ghost yet. And then a few years later, by the time you get to the 1838 account, He's got fully fleshed out Godhead with all three personages being separate material beings. And maybe that is what we see in the 1838 account. But then my pushback against criticisms on that is that I still think the 1838 account could be a Trinitarian view. So while I do think that Joseph had evolving views about Godhead, I'm not so sure that the 1838 account is a good example of that. Don Bradley, LDS scholar, gave a great Fair Mormon presentation on the First Vision last year, 2019. In this, he gives some really interesting insights into the First Vision. The first thing is that the First Vision is a vision. It is seeing things not visible to others, and he believes it is Joseph's initiation into seership. Soon after that is when he started using his seer stone to interact with Moroni and to see and to translate the Book of Mormon. He relates a quote from John Alger where Joseph introduced the first vision with the phrase, God touched my eyes, and then he was able to see the Father and the Son. He also believes that this is an ascent. He believes it's a vision, and it's also an ascent into heaven. It's a lifting up. He compared it to Lehi in 1 Nephi 1. Lehi has a vision very similar to Joseph Smith. God's presence descends to earth in a pillar of fire, and then Lehi is taken up into heaven where he sees God on his throne. And then he gives some evidence that this is a vision, not a visitation. First example is that Joseph talks about it as a pillar of fire, but yet no trees are burned, so that might be a clue that this is a spiritual interaction, not a physical interaction. In the 1842 Wentworth letter, 
It says, my mind was taken away from the objects which I was surrounded and I was enwrapped in a heavenly vision. The 1838 implies a leaving of consciousness. Quote, when I came to myself again, I found myself lying on my back. So something happened where he's kind of out of the normal realm of consciousness. And then also in an 1843 sermon where he's explaining about the Godhead, he says, any person that has seen the heavens opened knows there are three personages in the heavens. Another clue about this vision versus visitation thing comes from Orson Hyde. Orson Hyde was in Germany preaching the gospel, and he wrote this pamphlet in German called A Cry Out in the Wilderness. So this is Orson Hyde's own take on the first vision. And he says, The adversary then made several strenuous efforts to cool his ardent soul. He filled his mind with doubts and brought to mind all manner of inappropriate images to prevent him from obtaining the object of his endeavors. At this sacred moment, the natural world around him was excluded from his view. Very interesting phrase. At this sacred moment, the natural world around him was excluded from his view, so that he would be open to the presentation of heavenly and spiritual things. Two glorious heavenly personages stood before him, resembling each other exactly in features and stature. An interesting quote from Kabbalistic Judaism that I think is applicable here, maybe. God didn't give the declarations of the Torah on Sinai. He didn't give the ten declarations. He only gave the first letter of the first word, and it was up for Moses to determine what the rest of the declarations should be from the mystical experience he had. It was up for him to unpack it. So this is how I see the first vision. Just like Greg Prince says, I think he had an interaction with the divine. What are the details? Who knows? The details are lost. We have some of the details from him. The first one is 12 years later, 1832. He goes from 14 years old to 26 years old and gives a first brief explanation of it. And then another six years forward, he gives another explanation. I think those details may not be perfectly accurate. I think it was a vision, not a visitation. I think spiritual visions always have a humanistic, collaborative, participatory, creative element in them. I don't think that takes away from the first vision. I think it was real, but I don't think what's important about it is necessarily the details that Joseph Smith learned from it, but it's what we have now because of the first vision. Of all the critical details of the first vision that are difficult in a faith crisis, this next thing probably was the biggest deal for me and kind of hard to reconcile, was that it didn't seem to be emphasized or discussed at all in the church. So Joseph Smith writes about it in his journal in 1832, but nobody else really knows about it. Even the 1838 account that they wrote as the official version didn't really get much traction. It wasn't published officially and known by everybody for a little later. Joseph Smith doesn't talk about it in any of his sermons. It's not talked about by Oliver Cowdery, Sidney Rigdon, Hiram Smith. It's not in Parley P. Pratt's 1837 book, A Voice of Warning, that was a very popular church missionary tool. It's not even in any anti-Mormon literature. There were several anti-Mormon responses to the Restoration, and none of them are criticizing the First Vision in any of those. It doesn't seem to be emphasized until Joseph F. Smith kind of took it upon himself to promote this and emphasize this in the late 1800s and early 1900s. So is that a question? Could that be a faith crisis issue? Definitely yes. It's a very reasonable question. Why do we talk about it so much and promote it so much now when they didn't 
in earlier times in the restoration. They were more focused on the Book of Mormon and the Angel Moroni. And I don't have a great answer to that from a literalistic, fundamentalistic, this is the God pushed down a religion that is doing things in a very God-breathed way. I don't have a, an answer from that perspective of the church, but from the perspective of the church that, that this is the people that have a leader that had a spiritual witness and that gave us symbols to follow him and we're trying to do something important as a religion and we're making sense of different things and emphasizing what we think as a faith community is important to us. I think that it's very reasonable that these things change. And, and from that perspective, I don't think the fact that we're emphasizing the first vision now when we didn't earlier should be very troublesome. Another takeaway that we have from the first vision is that we are the exclusive true church. And while it doesn't specifically say anywhere in the first vision account, God doesn't say that you're going to start the only true church. There definitely is an implication there, right? If God the Father and Jesus Christ are visiting Joseph Smith and telling him that no religions are true, there's an implication there that the religion he starts is going to be the true one. There's an implication that if Joseph Smith is translating the Book of Mormon and that it's a true ancient record, that there's a pretty strong implication that that book is going to be involved with the one and only true church of God. But I think the biggest issue related to us claiming to be the one and only true church is related to the priesthood restoration narrative. So let's get into that a little bit. According to the official record that we teach in the LDS Church, May 15, 1829, John the Baptist appeared to Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery in Harmony, Pennsylvania, and conferred the Aaronic Priesthood to them. We don't have the exact date, but within a month or so after that, we assume that Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery received the Melchizedek priesthood from Peter, James, and John. This was during the time of the Book of Mormon translation, and we often hear the narrative that they were seeing that Jesus Christ came to the Nephites and that he gave them authority and, and called 12 disciples and gave them authority. And so authority is definitely a theme, and they're thinking about authority from the very beginning. So it makes sense that this would be on their minds and that they would be seeking revelation. But there's no mention of this angel visitation and this priesthood restoration for quite some time. According to D. Michael Quinn, no mention of angelic ordinations can be found in original documents until 1834 or 1835, and thereafter accounts of the visit of Peter, James, and John by Cowdery and Smith remained vague and contradictory. There's no mention of these angelic visitations or the restoration of the priesthood in the Book of the Commandments that was the precursor of the Doctrine and Covenants, published in 1833 with 65 revelations. There's no mention of it there. David Whitmer said, I never heard that an angel had ordained Joseph and Oliver to the Aaronic Priesthood until the year 1834 or 1835 or 1836 in Ohio. I do not believe that John the Baptist ever ordained Joseph and Oliver. Now, David Whitmer was falling away from the church and he didn't like this concept of priesthood. That was probably his biggest deal with the restoration in this moment, and that's why he left. A lot of people think that Sidney Rigdon, who came on the scene in late 1830 was when he was baptized, he was big on priesthood, and he talked about it in his prior congregation. He was a religious leader, and he talked about priesthood a lot. Even about the Aaronic and Melchizedek priesthood in forms that are similar to how it's going to come about in the 
Mormon church. He's really big into priesthood. And then a lot of people think that his influence started when he came in in 1830 and it evolved from there. But the Book of Mormon was translated before Sidney Rigdon came on board. And it's clear that Joseph and Oliver were thinking about authority. And it was a, it was a common theme for them in the Revelations and in the Book of Mormon. Richard Bushman says, The late appearance of these accounts raises the possibility of later fabrication. Did Joseph add the stories of angels to embellish his early history and make himself more of a visionary? That's a good question. And I would say that during my faith crisis and deconstruction, studying all these issues and coming to a new paradigm of, of religion, I would say that I did not believe that this event happened exactly as it's taught in an absolute way. I think it's very likely that Joseph had spiritual interactions with angels that related to priesthood authority. And I think the organizational structure and the concept of priesthood that came out of that is a great idea. I think it's a good concept. Looking at it maybe a little bit more symbolically or metaphorically, we have a work to do and we have authority from God to do that work. Okay, back to this idea of LDS exclusivity and the idea that we are God's only true church. Jana Reese, in her book, The Next Mormons, a brilliant book, I highly recommend it. It gives a lot of insights into kind of what's going on in the church right now, I think, with people leaving and especially with millennials and why they're leaving and why many of them are not finding the same meaning in the church that their parents had or that they had when they were younger. A lot of good insights. And in her research, Jenna Reese found that number two reason for the millennials leaving the church is that they stopped believing it was the one true church. When I interact with others in this world, I've been doing this for 10 years and I've interacted with a lot of people that have left the church or are struggling with a deep night of the soul faith crisis. The church says it's the one true church, and now I stopped believing that it's the one true church. Does that mean I need to leave the church? I still think it's good. I still love the church, but I no longer believe it's the one true church. Can I stay? That is a real relevant question. I hope the answer to that is yes. You can stay. We want you. And we're even going to go maybe out of our way to make you feel more comfortable. I hope that's the answer because I see this happening a lot. It's a real tough question. I'm not telling the church what to do in this podcast. I hope that we can retain both the people that think it's the one true church and people that don't believe that it's the one true church but still believe it's a very good church and the church that they want to belong to. I really hope that these two groups can coincide, and I really hope at a macro organizational level that we can do things to help both groups thrive and both groups coexist and both groups find meaning and find authenticity within the church. And you don't even need to have a faith crisis to wonder or start to doubt if this is the one true church. As you age and as you come to terms with the world and as you interact with other people in other faiths and you see the world better, the idea that we're the one true church does become a little bit more difficult. You see that we're about 15 million members, about 5 million active members, and that's great. That's a, that's a nice, strong core that we can do a lot with. But you look at the where we are in the rest of the world, we're a very small percentage of the world. In the 80s, we were growing a lot, like 5%. And we had this idea that by 2030, 2040, 2050, we'd be like 200 million, 300 million church. 
Well, the tr- the growth rate really fell off, and now our growth in active members is maybe about 1%, which is less than the world's growth rate of 1.1%. So every week, the percentage of active LDS in a sacrament meeting as the percentage of total people in the world is actually declining. It's actually becoming smaller. And that really makes you wonder, if we're the true church, what's the point? And, and you look at what we teach, and we have beautiful teachings, but is it so unique that it justifies that belief that we're the one true church? These are some of the things that a lot of people grapple with. You don't even need to have a faith crisis and start to, you don't even need to wonder about multiple first vision accounts or Book of Mormon historicity or some of these other faith crisis issues. Just seeing our place in the world and how the world works and that there's very good people and very good religions, it does make a lot of people wonder. And I think a lot of people move to a place that they don't really take that hard stance that we're the one true church, but they still believe we're a good church and they love it and they continue to engage and it doesn't bother them. But that really strong rhetoric of we're the only true church really does turn off some people. And that's the reason a lot of people are leaving the church and some millennials. And I don't think we need to stop saying that we're the one true church. But maybe instead of focusing on we're the one true church and patting ourselves on the back constantly because we're the one true church, we're trying to prove that we're the one true church because of this and because of that. Let's focus on what that means that we're the one true church. What are we going to do? What does the one true church do? What does that actually mean in our lives on a daily, weekly basis? Those are the messages that I think can provide meaning to people after they stop believing that it's the one true church. Terrell Gibbons, Patrick Mason, Richard Bushman, Adam Miller, these scholars are kind of trying to shift how we view exclusivity and what it means to be the one and only true church. And here's some of the arguments that they're using. First of all, Doctrine and Covenant section 1 verse 30 says, we are the only true and living church. I've heard this kind of logic. The focus back then probably was on the living aspect of that phrase, true and living church. It wasn't necessarily understood that all the churches weren't true, but we were the only living church. So it might have been understood as we're true, just like all the other good Christian Protestant churches are true. There's a bunch of churches that have pretty true doctrine, but we're the only living church. That's a little bit different emphasis. The emphasis is on living, not on true. Patrick Mason in a recent Faith Matters podcast, I highly recommend that Faith Matters podcast. They're interviewing some really good people, and Terrell Givens is is on there a lot, and it's always great to hear Terrell Givens. Patrick Mason says that on exclusivity, the real thing that we have exclusivity on are the ordinances. We believe that the ordinances are special and that they're required for all humans, but everyone has access to them. We're not like some religions where if you're chosen, if you're part of this church, you're going to go to heaven and everybody else is going to burn in hell, no matter what. We don't have anything like that. We believe that if someone else is living a good life in China or, or Pakistan and has no idea about the Mormon church and they die, that they're going to take their goodness into the next life and likely accept the ordinances and be exalted the same as us, or maybe higher than us, if we don't live as true or as honorable as they do. Even though we believe in exclusivity, we're not necessarily referring to ourselves. We're referring to it the authority. 
But that authority is offering these things to everyone. Richard Bushman has an interesting take on this. He is asked what it means that we're the only true church, and here's the quote from him. I think the most fundamental meaning is that God is in this work, and he's helping us when we try to serve in the church and try to bless our brothers and sisters, that he's helping the leaders of the church guide the church along, and in general, we're on the side of our Heavenly Father when we're part of the church, and what I think it doesn't mean is that no one else in the world can come to God without the church. I mean, we're really only a fraction of 1% of the world's population, and I can't imagine a God who wouldn't have any interest in other people or that they would be living vain lives until they run into Mormonism. I have evangelical friends who are probably stronger followers of Christ than I am, and I would think when they went to heaven, God would certainly welcome them and that people all over the world can be uplifted spiritually, that God is working with them and answering their prayers, so it really isn't a matter of salvation. It's ostensibly that we have God with us in our work. I would add one more thing. When I hear the statement that the church is true, we normally put the emphasis on the word true, but I would put the emphasis on the word church because I think that what we do have is we have particular missions that we can do as a church that may be distinctive or that we may be particularly good at, and ours is producing people of goodwill. People that grow up as Mormons learn to be generous with their time. They learn to sacrifice. They learn to get along with other people, to respect other people's feelings, to avoid competition and striving to get ahead. And I think those are wonderful gifts that come to us through church experience. And I do think we have a mission to carry out that goodwill into every area of our lives. Into boardrooms and playing fields and stages and classrooms, wherever we go, we should be the people of goodwill. He also gave a presentation where he talks about radiant Mormonism, where we are known as being competent people. We're disproportionately represented in a lot of high professions, doctors, nurses, accountants, lawyers. We're competent people. And we also are known as being willing to serve. And so you take our competency and are willing to serve, and you have a people who can really get something done if they put their minds together and want to serve mankind. And Richard Bushman's take kind of reminds me of how the South Park episode and the Book of Mormon musical made fun of Mormons is kind of portraying us as these squeaky clean people that are just kind of naive but super nice to everybody and the, the focus of our teachings and our doctrine is to be super nice to everybody. And I think that's fine. Let's own it. We are the people of goodwill. We're always going to seem a little bit backwards and we're focused on family values and we're focused on being nice to people and that's a wonderful thing. Let's embrace it. Let's own it. That's a reputation we can build around. Adam Miller said, don't ask the thin question, is the church true? Ask the thick question, is this the body of Christ? Is Christ manifest here? Is this thing alive? Does his spirit breathe in these lungs? Does forgiveness flourish here? Is faith strengthened? Is hope enlivened? Is charity practiced? Can I see here the body of Christ? Don't obsess about if the church is true, make it true. Don't worry if the Book of Mormon is true, make it true. Make it true in your lives. Of anything we'll talk about today, that is the best message, I think. Make it true. Let's make this true. All of this past history doesn't matter. It doesn't matter who said we're the only true church and when. What matters is, are we going to act like we're the true church? Individually and collectively, are we going to act like this is the true church? What are we going to do to prove that this church is true? Okay, now we're into faith reconstruction and a couple things I want to end with. In the 1838 account, 
the key thing that Joe Smith seemed to be hitting on that other churches didn't have that he thought was important for God's true church, there's a couple things. One is that the creeds were an abomination in his sight, that those professors were corrupt, that they draw near to me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They teach for doctrines the commandments of men, having a form of godliness, but they deny the power thereof. And then denying the power thereof is going to lead us into the second one about covenants. So the first one is about the creeds, and the second one is about the covenants. First one, the creeds. Joseph Smith did not like the creeds, and that's the Nicene Creed, and that's the Trinity, and he moved away from the Trinity doctrine. And this quote here is a clue as to the reason of why he wanted to move away from that doctrine. I want to come up into the presence of God and learn all things, but the creeds set up limits and say, Hitherto shalt thou come, and no further, which I cannot subscribe to. He wanted his followers to touch the face of God, as Greg Prince said. In Joseph Smith's scripture that he brought forth, the Book of Mormon, the Book of Moses, the Joseph Smith translation of the Bible, the Book of Abraham, the Doctrine of Covenants, all of these are full of humans seeing God face to face. DNC 93.1, my mission president quoted this all the time, Verily thus saith the Lord, it shall come to pass that every soul who forsaketh his sins and cometh unto me and calleth on my name and obeyeth my voice and keepeth my commandments shall see my face and know that I am. A lot of people take this very literally and very seriously, and I did. I'm going to be a little vulnerable here. And when I was a missionary and my mission president quoted this over and over in a very spiritual way, very serious way. I took this seriously and I had a goal, a spiritual goal that before I died, that I would see the face of the Savior. And maybe I shouldn't be that direct about sharing these personal things, but that's an important thing to a lot of people in our church. I don't take that as literally anymore. I still think it's a powerful concept and I view it more symbolically. Like, Moses seeing the image of God in the burning bush and and seeing the image of God in our life today in the people that we interact with. The poor wafery man of grief, he serves this poor man in grief and then he realizes that it's the Savior. And we see the image of God in the people that we serve and especially the people that serve us. We see his hand in our life. That's what it means to me right now. And I thank Joseph Smith for creating a religion that made that concept important to me. And then the second one is the ordinances and the covenants. And I think that's where Joseph Smith finally caught on to. That's where he was going to create the power of the religion that other churches were missing was in the covenants. He brought back Old Testament covenant and temple concepts. And I think that's the symbol that today really carries us and helps us create that relationship with God. I think that's why we have the authority of God and the priesthood of God and the ordinances of God, so that we can administer ordinances and covenants. And again, I'm not saying this in an absolute way. I'm talking about from a human up perspective. This is humans are perceiving as the most important thing to approach God. And and maybe occasionally we're being nudged in the right direction in an absolute top-down way. But this is primarily viewed by me as something that Joseph Smith is working at, trying to be creative, trying to see what what works and what doesn't work. And then as a church evolution over time, what we've kept that really works. We enter into a covenant with God. He's going to be our God. He's going to protect us. He's going to take care of us. He's going to give us salvation. And we promise to love him 
and to keep his commandments. And what are his commandments? Jesus said all the commandments can be summarized by two, love God and love your neighbor. And then King Benjamin even broke down the love God thing further by saying, when you're in the service of your fellow beings, you're in the service of your God. So this whole obedience, this whole commandments is to help us serve others. Back to that Richard Bushman concept of being the people of goodwill, building up of the kingdom of God, giving my might, might, mind, and strength through the kingdom of God, love, consecration. What is it for? It's to take our service to our fellow man seriously. We have a job to do. We're building up the kingdom of God, which is heaven on earth. We are redeeming the world. And what if we all did it? What if I covenanted to, to do my best and I really did it and I really took my obeying the commandments seriously and serving others seriously and being honest and true in all of my relationships and loving everyone and following Jesus Christ the very best I could? What if I did that? And what if you did that? And what if all of our wards did that? We could do something very powerful. And when Joseph Smith says, that other churches are denying the power thereof, I think that's what it is. It's the covenant to build this Zion, this heaven on earth. We sometimes hear about this covenant path in conference talk, and sometimes it feels like, oh, it's so much to do, so much work, I just feel guilty. And that's not the way to look at it. We form a covenant, and then we know we're okay. We know we're on God's side. We know he's going to protect us and look out for us. And we just need to stay in the covenant. Stephen Robinson says, we don't understand the grace of God and that once we enter this covenant, we are saved. We are born again Christians in the sense that we believe that once we enter into the covenant, the work is done. We are saved. We don't need to worry about our salvation anymore. Now we can worry about partnering with God, partnering with Jesus Christ to do their work, which is to bring to pass the immortality and eternal life of man, which is to make this kingdom of God on earth now. Adam Miller, in his latest book on the early resurrection in Christ, the kingdom of God is here now. We are living as though we are resurrected in Christ now. Let's stop worrying about whether or not we're saved, whether or not we're going to go to heaven, whether or not our kids are going to be saved, whether or not our kids are going to go to heaven. We all are. We believe that once we enter the covenant, we're in. Joseph Fielding Smith said, When a seal is put upon the father and mother, it secures their posterity so that they cannot be lost, but will be saved by virtue of the covenant of their father and mother. Stop worrying about yourself. Stop worrying about your kids. John Steinbeck in East of Eden said, Now that you don't have to be perfect, you can be good. And I think that's what the covenant does for us. We don't have to be perfect. Jesus was perfect so that we don't need to be. We take on this covenant and we're in the covenant path. Now we can focus on being good. What can you do today to be good? What can you do today to partner with Christ to redeem mankind? Jesus was a champion for the marginalized. What can we do to help the poor and the marginalized? What can we do to bring justice, to right the wrongs of the world? What can we do as individuals and as a church to bring this heaven on earth now? That's what we consecrate. That's what we're covenanting. A girl in my ward gave a testimony, and she said she'd been not living right for a while, and she felt like she needed God's help. She needed a miracle in her life. She needed to do something really difficult, and she felt like she needed help from God to do this. So she decided to get her life right. She started obeying the commandments better. She started praying daily. She started going to church. 
And I remember hearing her talk thinking, oh, this sweet girl, you're perfect the way you are. You don't need to prove to God that you're worthy of any blessings. He wants to bless you. You don't need to feel guilty and you don't need to feel like you need to change your whole entire life in order to be worthy or to have value. But then she said something that really hit me. She said she knew she didn't need to do these things and that God loved her, but she felt like if she was going to ask for a miracle in her life, that she needed to put herself in a position that she felt like she could ask for that miracle. And I think that's the covenant. When we enter into a partnership with God where he's going to be our God and we're going to be his people, we want to do our part in that partnership. And it doesn't mean that we're not worthy when we're not, but we want to. God's doing this for us. We want to do our part too. And I think it does give us some power. I think that young woman, I don't know if she got the miracle that she wanted, but I believe without a doubt that her doing that work put her in a position that even from a purely naturalistic sense, her doing that work and putting herself in that frame of mind, put herself in a position where she could be more successful in her life. Now we're getting into prosperity gospel, and I know that it's not always a one-to-one relationship. I do the work and I get the blessing. But I think generally, when we covenant to the highest good that we know to do our best, good things generally happen. And we put ourselves in a position to have success in our lives. I do believe that. And if we don't have success in our lives, if things don't go our way, then it's okay because that's not necessarily the point. We have a purpose to our life. And it's not that we're going to end up with a lot of good things. It's that we're working together to create this Zion. We're part of this covenant and we're in this daily walk with God and we're taking on his priorities and it's giving us a higher purpose and we can deal with the negatives. We can deal with the failures. We can deal with the hard things of life when we have this meaning. So I don't know if there's a next life being real vulnerable I hope there is, but I don't know for sure if there is. I don't know if the covenants I make are going to mean anything in the next life. I hope that they do, but they're absolutely vital and critical and necessary for me in the here and now in today. And that's why I can say this church is true and this covenant is true because it is true for me in the here and now in the moment. It gives us a lot of peace and a lot of confidence to be in a covenant with God. In Isaiah, Israel has gone astray. In metaphorical sense, they are shacking up with every other man around. And Isaiah calls Israel to repentance, but he speaks through God's voice saying, where is thy divorcement paper? Meaning Yahweh is saying to Israel, even though you're doing all this stuff, even though you're running around with everyone else, even though you've rejected me and you've run away from me, we're not divorced. You're still my bride. We're still in this covenant together. You're still my people. I still love you. I'm still going to fight your battles for you. You're still going to win. So please come back. That's the kind of God we have. That's the kind of God we're in a covenant with. We don't have to be perfect, but when we know he's there for us and, and he is our God, then it frees us up from being perfect and now we can be good without this weight around our neck to have to be perfect all the time. Okay, James 1, five. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God that giveth to all men liberally and abradeth not, and it shall be given him. Isn't that inspiring? Don't we all need that wisdom? 
The symbol of the first vision is that God is alive today. God is not shut up in the Bible. He's not shut up in the past, locked up in Israel, in another world, in another time. He's out and about, and he's moving in the lives of the people that will be his disciples. He's appearing in America to the Nephites. He's appearing to Joseph Smith. He's in the modern age. He's in the old world. He's in the new world. He's all over. And I'm grateful for Joe Smith for bringing us that message. And I think that's what we wanted to accomplish today. Thank you for listening to that. Please join us again.